Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work. Get out. Come on. We don't know where the moon came from. Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible. We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia Webb, the editorial lead for Bio and Health at A16Z. Today's episode is with A16Z's American Dynamism team, Catherine Boyle and David Ulovich, also known as DU. Catherine is a general partner focused on national security, aerospace and defense, public safety, housing, education, and industrials. David is a general partner focused on companies promoting American Dynamism, as well as enterprise and SaaS companies. They are joined by A16Z Bio and Health general partner Vijay Pandey and me, Olivia Webb. Together, we talk about the idea behind American Dynamism, how they think about building within highly regulated industries, how trust is key to the procurement process, and how AI might play out in the American dynamism space. Let's get started. Catherine and David, thank you for joining me and BJ on BioEats World. We're going to start with a question that I'm sure you get in a lot of podcasts, but just because our audience might not be familiar, Can you explain the concept of American dynamism to us and walk us through maybe the key areas that you focus on? American dynamism uh, is a broad umbrella term that we use to talk about the areas of investment where software and technology meets the needs of either government customers or highly regulated environments or areas that are critical to, you know, what we view as sort of the American way of life. And what we would say is really the, the foundational components of the American dream. So that can include things like housing and transportation, education. Um, obviously, there's a huge crossover with healthcare, which is one of the most important things, which is why we're on this podcast today. And then defense and space and energy, which are areas where we spend a lot of our time. And, you know, I think Catherine, who wrote the, the original blog post titled American Dynamism, can talk more about the feelings of, of how we got got here and how American dynamism really is an undercurrent to a movement that drives a lot of entrepreneurs. But in terms of the areas we're investing in, it really is a a broad swath. And we have made investments in education, um, but really the most in in transportation and in supply chain and resiliency. But really, I think the the bulk of our time lately has been in defense, in space, we, we like to say that, you know, it's a broad category because it's really companies that touch all Americans and that have some sort of relationship with government. For a very long time in Silicon Valley, like if you said that you were selling to the Department of Defense or if you said that you were selling to the government, 
uh, investors would walk away. They'd say, we do not want to have to deal with working with the government. And except in places like bio and healthcare, um, there just really wasn't that much investment. And I think what we've been pleasantly surprised by is that you know now we are seeing tons and tons of companies where they see themselves as working solely with the government, where they see government as a, as a large customer, uh, or they think that government is such a key stakeholder that they have to engage government in some way very early on in their trajectory. So that means that you know the companies may look dissimilar in terms of the the verticals they're operating in, whether it's transportation, as as you mentioned, or, or or something like housing or, or or defense. But they're very similar in the way that you company build, and that you have to make government a constituent or 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 a stakeholder in the company much earlier in the process than say a traditional software company where you're only thinking about government in the later stages. So we really are seeing it as kind of a new category of company that's being built. And maybe, BJ, to that end, you could elaborate on dynamism within bio and health, because that's where you spend your time. Yeah, you know, DU and Catherine, I think, laid out really beautifully in that companies that sort of all Americans have to deal with and that interact with the government, that's kind of healthcare written all over it. From another lens, you know, you think about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, like that's got healthcare written over like two of the three, maybe. But when I think about some of the key crises that we're dealing with in the country, the cost of healthcare is also one of them. Like it's gone from 20% of GDP, it's approaching 25% of GDP, it's growing exponentially. Other than the country becomes a country of healthcare workers treating each other, uh, we've got to do something. Uh, and it's, it's something that has reached the sort of national stage in terms of debate and discussions. And this is, I think, a natural opportunity for technology to come in and where innovation is really needed to really shift the curve. Because uh, we just we can't keep this going. Yeah, no, absolutely, and, and it's interesting because when you know that that kind of famous chart that that we've all talked about and that Mark's talked about in terms of housing, education, and healthcare being sort of the American dream, and everything else has gotten much cheaper. But if you look at just the cost of those soaring, you know, I think healthcare innovation and, and healthcare technology has done a very good job over the last ten years of of working with government, and then of course in bio, you know, the the FDA approval processes, like these these are kind of known quantities in terms of how technology can work in these sectors. But in terms of housing and education, there hasn't been as, as much of a push. And I think it's, it's our thesis that in these categories where they've sort of been neglected by technology, say, in the previous sort of Web 2.0 generation, we're now going to see just an explosion of companies. And we already are. I mean, I do think, to DU's point, aerospace and defense, the reason why we're spending time there is just because there are so many companies being built now, just given not only the geopolitical crises that we're in, but just the the number of companies that have been kind of spinning out of places like Tesla, SpaceX, Palantir, Anduril, companies that have been successful. So, so we do think the next 10 years of innovation in these categories are, are going to look a lot like kind of what happened in previous 10 years in bio and, and healthcare. In particular, that we're at a time right now in healthcare where technologies like AI and, and other forms of tech are really starting to make a, an impact. And uh, the FDA, I think, is responding pretty positively in terms of trying to think about how to modernize and how to handle it. But I worry that they're going to have a day not that far from now where they have 10x or 50x the amount of drug approvals to look at because all of that just gets automated, that uh, they're going to be dealing with a universe that is sort of far exceeds what they're used to as the tech side advances, but the government side maybe doesn't advance in lockstep. I'm curious like what you've seen, especially maybe, I don't know if it's in areas defense or education where presumably you've had to move government or regulatory uh, along with you as the tech is advancing so quickly? There is an element of timing to, the, to American dynamism, and, and it's multifaceted. So geopolitically, 
whether it's the war in Ukraine, that the nature of warfare has changed. The methodologies and techniques that we use to protect the warfighters uh, and the men and women who serve our country has changed. For most people, they think of, of modern wars, but what's happened in the Middle East for the last 20 plus years. And that was a, a set of a series of conflicts and wars where we would pick the days that we would fight. If we weren't ready to fight on Wednesday, we didn't fight on Wednesday. We could move our carrier battle groups into various gulfs or, or seas, and we could launch attacks, you know, from afar, as far as our enemy was concerned or our adversary was concerned, from the safety of our ships, where we had full situational awareness, where the kinetic capabilities of the United States military and our allies was disconnected from the electronic warfare. And now we see that there's a battle in the Ukraine where electronic warfare and kinetic warfare are largely intertwined. They are directly connected in the kill chain where, you know, somebody might be triangulating a cell phone that then causes the launch of a, of a kinetic weapon that goes and causes harm. And so those things are now much more tied together than they have been historically. There's no carrier battle group that's sitting around the Ukraine. We're not uh, mm -hmm. putting men and women on the ground the same way we would in, in normal conflicts. We're also seeing asymmetry in the economics of warfare. The like extreme example, we use like, you know, a multi-million dollar missile to shoot down a weather balloon or a spy balloon or whatever kind of balloon it was. Uh, a very cheap balloon cost a lot of money to take out of the sky. And so the, the asymmetry of the economics of warfare has changed the needs of warfare, the needs for intelligence and to connect those things. So that's, so that's one dynamic. You also in space have a company like SpaceX that has now made it easy to put things in space. That was not possible 10 years ago. You could not say, I have an idea for a satellite. I want to get it into space quickly. That was, there was no, there was no essentially website you could go to with a published price list to attach a satellite to their launch vehicle and get a satellite into orbit. That is now all possible. Reentry is now going to become possible where you can not only put something in space, but bring it back. And so the opportunities created from that, it's, it, it, it is, as Catherine mentioned, the alumni is the alumni of these companies of, of SpaceX and Palantir and others, but it's also the capabilities that these companies have unlocked. Palantir forged the way in educating the government of how to deal with software companies. The last dimension of this is like COVID highlighted to people what the supply chain was. A lot of people had never heard mm -hmm. of the supply chain or they didn't really know some ephemeral concept. And then they realized, hey, wait a minute, when nothing is moving from across the Pacific Ocean to the United States, we no longer have goods that we need. We may no longer have medicines that we need. It turns out we don't make a lot of the raw materials and we don't mine the materials we need to make semiconductors. People now know semiconductors often come from Taiwan. And now they realize Taiwan is not just a friend of the United States, but an imperative, you know, key partner of the United States because they deliver the chips we need to make our electronics work. And so people are much more educated on the sort of global supply chain risk that we have. And they want to have much more um, reshoring of technology, reshoring of raw materials. Uh, reshoring of capabilities and, and education. And so all of these things, when you put them together, I think make it a really exciting and opportune time. And then when you layer in advances in software like AI and others, it's really, it, it is exciting. We would rather work with an existing procurement regime or work with a company that knows the regulatory framework beforehand them with a company that's trying to create a new regulatory framework. And I think that's something that's that's really interesting to your point on, like, how does AI just change the game? You're hearing people put out proposals for how is Washington going to deal with AI and generative AI when, when even like investors and people who've worked in an AI their entire careers don't know the ramifications 
of mm-hmm. this, uh, this new technology. And so I think that's actually going to be really interesting. It's like, you know, our, our bias has always been, you know, part of the reason why we're investing in aerospace and defense, it's not only because the talent's there, it's because the procurement regime is actually, it's understood. You know what it takes to, to get a contract, like no, no one's changing the laws of the game. Whereas there are other examples, say in, you know, drone technology, there was, you know, I'd say five to seven years where the, you know, the FAA didn't really know what it wanted to do with drones. And a lot of companies went out of business waiting for regulatory understandings and wake regulatory framework so that they could work within the confines of the FAA. And so we always prefer the former, which is, you know, the the game is set. And, you know, the FDA has done, I think, a very good job of always setting the regulations and that, you know, companies could play by their rules. It'll be very interesting to see how AI changes things. And if the government can act very quickly um, across a variety of verticals, because it's not going to just touch the FDA, it's going to touch the FAA, the FCC, all of the regulatory bodies. And we'll see which ones act quickly and which ones don't. And and that will have immense ramifications uh, for our companies. One thing I think that is core to... American dynamism and the idea of investing in companies that that support the national interest is that the U.S. has always looked to innovation and entrepreneurship to solve its problems, right? To use COVID as like a, a course example, when COVID happened, you saw China retreat to a very, very authoritarian sort of modality, total top-down control, locking up buildings, preventing the movement of people. That was their response, Right. Europe sort of went into this like bureaucratic quagmire where like, I think almost nothing got done. It was very confusing. Nobody knew which way it was up. The policies kept shifting and it was sort of just a big muddled mess. And in the US, we said, look, the first company to build a vaccine is going to win. Every other company that builds a vaccine will also get money. And like, we will, we will basically fund and pay and guarantee payment for people that come up with a vaccine. And they did it in record breaking time. And obviously, you know, with Moderna and things, I'm sure you've talked about this on the pod. Like those things came came about, you know, in quotes quickly as a result of, you know, decades of previous work. But ultimately, like we we retreated to our best form, which is the form of innovation and entrepreneurship. And so I think when we when it comes to making investments, we really look for founders that, you know, are building in the areas that we care about and paint us a vision for the future that we're excited about, but really understand how to navigate the customer in particular, because that, that is a key part of, I think that, that it's different to say, it's actually probably similar in bio, but it's different than consumer software investing, enterprise software investing, where you really have to navigate the go-to-market and you really have to have an appreciation and a respect for who your customer is, how to sell to them, how to make sure that you're delivering an exceptional outcome to them. Um, because that that's not the same in the consumer market where you just might have you know, some kind of like a, a viral effect or a network effect. It, it's different when you're in these highly tightly controlled, limited number of buyer kind of industries. Do you see that as a model that could be used outside of a pandemic? T- totally. How would that work? This, this is a model that I would love to see the Department of Defense sort of put put about, which is sort of a much more of a competition model where we say, hey, hey look, we are looking for a certain capability. Let's say a drone that can fly, you know, 100 kilometers and back with perfect telemetry, drop off a payload or whatever the capability is and say, look, on, on August 1st, we're going to all meet in the desert. And whoever has a drone that can do this, first prize is a $100 million contract. Second prize is a $30 million try again contract. And third prize is steak knives, you know, to use yes, the Glenn yes. Gary, Glenn Ross uh, <laughs> quote. Well, I thought this fire, I thought third prize is you're fired though. Yeah, third prize, third prize is your fire. What's second prize is steak knives? Yeah, I have to rewatch the movie. Right? Second, second prize, well, the $30 million try again contract is like steak knives. Okay, third prize is your fire. And so it doesn't matter 
if you're Raytheon or Boeing or a tiny startup, everybody can show up on that day and try to win the competition. And I, I think that's a very attractive model. And it really evens the playing field. It gets rid of a lot of the, you know, military industrial complex sort of triangle that, that we deal with. And so I would love to see more of that. And I think we never want to let a crisis go to waste, right? And I think that we learned a lot from, from warp speed of how to really foster innovation. And I would love to see that model uh, repeated in the, all over the Department of Defense. I'd like to see it repeated in space. And, and that to me would be very exciting. Well, well, it's sort of an obvious, but maybe naive question is like, how could a startup with, I don't know, like 10 or $100 million of financing compete against a prime? They're winning all yeah. the time. I mean, you know, the primes are very good at certain things and they're very bad at other things. And, and in some like, you know, maybe counterintuitive way, they're very bad at innovation. They tend to like farm that out to subcontractors. In fact, to many yeah. of these startups. And so by allowing the startups to go direct, it's really a much stronger um, pathway for the startups. The, the primes are very good at managing complex contracts and customer relationships and, and delivering against that. And they're, they're extraordinary at that and doing things that may last 30, 40, 50 years at scale, right? I mean, we, we just figured out from the, the balloon incident that we're still flying the like U-2 um, spy right. plane, which is like from, I think the 60s, like the Gary Powers plane. Like, I mean, you know, like I, I didn't really, I didn't even actually know we were still flying those. And then, you know, then they released a photo of a pilot up at like 60,000 feet altitude. So, you know, like the primes are very good at that, but they're, they're actually not so good at the innovation piece. And they tend to farm a lot of that work out. And as the nature of warfare moves from like the big platform strategy, which is like the big aircraft carrier down to things that are like a one-time use drone, like that, that's something that a startup can compete against and deliver against it. One of the things that I think the DOD has realized is that, you know, software is actually really important. For a while, they thought they could build software in government-owned software farms. They thought that the primes could hire someone hourly and build software. And just realizing that actually, no, like there's there's a different way that you build software than how you build hardware. And that the the procurement regime that was set up to, you know, procure battleships, tanks, these like very physical hard things that primes are good at building does not work when you're trying to procure software, which is a very different beast. And so that I think is the thing that over the last 10 years, we've seen the, the DOD really come to terms with is that they're going to have to find new ways to work directly with software first companies. And not again, not all these companies are software only, but software is at the core of the innovation that they're doing. And the primes are going to, you know, I, I don't think they like hearing this, but they're going to need to take a step back when it comes to things like software development, because they cannot compete with the startups that are attracting the best talent. And that's become very clear when we think, okay, it's not just a capital game. It's not just these large companies have more access to capital or can invest in these projects. Uh, you know, a team of 10 people that's building a pure software, you know, pure software company can do much faster innovation than say a, a team that's at one of these large primes. So, so that I think has been the big shift over the last 10 years. Yeah, and how much of it is how these things are financed? When I think about primes, and this is uh, maybe an area that you, you know you know way more than I do, but like I often think of those contracts being cost plus. Yeah. And software in a cost plus framework seems a little odd to me versus yes. reward for innovation framework. Yes, and 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 that's always been why when you know even when we talk about primes, which are you know many of them are public companies, like you see that their margins are so slim, and it's because the way that they're charging is they're saying you know we'll, we'll put a margin on top of of whatever it takes to get something done. And when you think of how 
traditional Silicon Valley companies, you know, that you're selling a product. Um, and so you want to build the best product as, as, as you possibly can. You want to sell, to sell it for a fixed price. You want the, you know, per, it could be per unit or it could be a large contract that delivers certain capabilities. But it's antithetical to the way that companies are run and companies are built. If you're in a cost plus model, the incentives are actually that you continue to have workers continue to work in perpetuity. And what we've seen in cases of projects at, at the DOD is that, you know, you can have these 10, 15, 20 year projects that continuously go over budget. It could be a hundred million dollar project that ends up becoming a multi-billion dollar, trillion dollar project in, in certain cases over, over a decade. And, and that actually gets passed to the taxpayers. And so there's no repercussions for going over budget for some of these large projects. And the cost plus mo model actually encourages that bad behavior. And so I think that's another thing that, that really the DOD is starting to realize is that, you know, we can build products and sell the product and deliver it on time in a way that that kind of the traditional model that has been the, the way that, that products are procured is just is just not capable of doing. It's intriguing, you especially make this distinction between its software and hardware, because I think one of the trends that we're seeing in life sciences and healthcare is that more and more that's becoming software. And I, I think the similar transition will probably have to be in how one views that's their cultural building of these things very much as well. Absolutely. To go back to the competition idea, how you think about a problem to which there isn't a solution as simple as the drone that flies 100 feet in the air wins. So like homelessness or family formation or housing prices or even like the cancer moonshot that the White House has had going for, I think, almost 10 years at least what we've seen in the DOD is that the DOD does actually have these competitions. They'll say, we have this requirement, we have this need, can you please put forth your best ideas? And hundreds of companies will come forward with ideas. Um, and actually, I think actually not having set rules or not saying they have to be this certain you know type of company or this certain parameter, like actually it's good to have sort of an open call for solve this problem for us because then you get more innovation. The big problem at the DOD, and they will tell you this, this is not us speaking, is that they don't have the authority to then give that $100 million. You read the press releases that come out of you know the secretary's office and it's like over the past year, we've backed 1,200 startups. And it's like, well, well, twelve hundred startups. That that's a that's a spray and pray model um, into pretty much every company that, like, if we were doing that, it'd be giving a check to every company we see. And like, that is not the way that venture capitalists operate. You know, you want to concentrate your bets. You want to give larger dollars to the things that are working. And what I think the 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 government hasn't yet realized is that it's good to pick winners. There's a saying inside the government: we do not want to be picking the winner. And, and there's a variety of cultural reasons for that. There's a variety of, I, I'd say, almost oversight reasons where, where the government never wants to be seen as the one picking the winner. But actually, there has to be leadership in that realm. And there has to be, OK, this is what's working and this is what's not. And so for any competition, you're going to have to pick the winner and you're going to have to put large dollars behind it. And of course, there's going to be lobbyists fighting each other and stakeholder battles and, and state by state battles, too. But that's what it takes to get innovation done is for people making decisions and, and making decisions with capital. So I actually don't think we, we need an onerous process around what the rules of the game would be. It's more, does it work? Who's the best? And then let's reward the best. Well, ironically, government picks winners in the end anyways, whether we're talking about like TCPIP <laughs> yeah. or, or, or the Joint Strike Fighter or something like that. Yeah. You can't have like five fighters out, types of fighters out there. 
Totally. It's the winner we've known the longest in many, in many cases. Um, and I think moving away from that, realizing that um, companies that may only be three, four, five years old can produce something better than a company that's 100 years old in the case of the, the large primes and DOD. And I'm sure that it's very similar in healthcare. Positioning startups to actually go against the, the, big, the big companies is, is, is what needs to happen more. Well, yeah. And I think what's common in both is trust, right? Like, you know, you want to know this company is going to be there five years from now, 10 years from now, use a fighter pilot analogy. Again, like fighter plane analogies, some of these planes are in service for decades. How do your startups sort of engender that degree of trust that that becomes a non-issue or is that still always an issue? Just like any company in any market, they tend to sort of, you know, crawl, walk, run in the way they do this. And so Andrew is a good example. They started out with one product. They delivered against it very, very well. They quickly became a multi-product company. They delivered against those. And now, now they have a, they're a portfolio, effectively, of product kind of company. And they have steady state products and they continue to manufacture and sell. They have new innovative products. And then obviously they have an R&D pipeline. And each time they deliver against those product lines and deliver them to the customer, they build and add credibility. And that resulted in them getting a massive congressional appropriation and, and being part of a program of record. Um, I think they're the first company in history to get to a billion-dollar program of record in five years. Catherine can can keep me honest on that, but I think that's right. And so, they, but they along those five years, it wasn't like they sat around doing nothing, delivering nothing. They were delivering product all along the way to multiple um, organizations within the Department of Defense and across the United States government to support the missions and the objectives of the of the customer. And so I think now at this point, and Andrew is taken very seriously in Washington, but it it was a very conscientious and deliberate effort to to, to build, deliver, build, deliver, just like any any other company, like the crawl, walk, run modality. Yeah. When you look at kind of aerospace defense, uh, SpaceX is another good example. It's very visible if the company's working or not. Um, it's actually very easy, I think, for, for Washington to say, wow, this is a capability we need. Uh, these drones fly, the rocket launches, everything is working. I think it's actually harder in pure software for mm -hmm. people who are not technologists inside of the DOD or they're not you know, software first technologists. It's in some ways harder to say we need this capability in software because as a user, it looks more like magic than it does, okay, like the rocket lands, it meets our capabilities. And so that's where I think you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about is just the talent pipeline now coming out of universities. For a very long time, the types of people who went to government were people who had focused on humanities. There was sort of a division. If you were an engineer, you didn't really go into to government. You went into, you know, actually building things. And I think now what we're seeing is just the, you know, the STEM degrees surpassing all of the humanities degrees combined this past year. We're going to have a much more technical bureaucratic workforce in Washington. And that will be good for American society that you have a generation of young people who know what it means to code. They have engineering degrees. They understand how to use them in different domains. They're not just working as pure engineers. Maybe they're going, you know, maybe they have that background, but they're going to Washington, working on the Hill, working inside the DOD. And so I think we're, we're really hopeful that that will actually be a big shift in how software is perceived, because it makes sense that a lot of the people who came in to the bureaucracy 25, 30 years ago, that they didn't have the software capabilities that this next generation will have. It's interesting that we often look at the technological advance that we're seeing right now in AI, kind of analogous to what we saw in maybe internet plus mobile or something like that. Something really transformative, like a trans massively transformative platform. When you think about the early days of the internet, a lot of that was funded by the National Science Foundation, even like choosing TCPIP. My understanding is like that's something that came out of that process over alternatives. Government was involved here and there with 
DARPAnet becoming the internet. And a fantasy of mine is that uh, we could see something analogous for AI where there's AI infrastructure provided such that um, we all could build upon it because universities and companies and government will all be using AI and that I'd love for us to have the most modern AI infrastructure in the world. But the alternative is that we go the other direction where people try to slow down AI. I'm curious how you see all this playing out and what can we do to help innovation? I think our best form as a country is the one that fosters innovation and entrepreneurship. And to the idea that we would a priori regulate something as broad and impactful as AI is to me very concerning and very, very, very risky. And certainly our adversaries around the world and just other countries around the world, um, even our allies are investing in AI. They want to rapidly advance their AI capabilities and they see it the way we should see it, which is a rising tide for, for everybody it, it, it touches, whether it's helping people in education, whether it's sifting through massive amounts of data um, to find the needles in the haystack for drug discovery, whether it's iterating through processes in a generative way, whether it's advancing our ability to detect threats or advance against threats, whatever, whatever the case may be. As far as I can tell, there's like three different groups of people that are trying to control or shut down or slow down the advancements of AI. It's the people that already are like the incumbents um, that have a massive language model and uh, have poured in hundreds of millions of dollars um, and they don't want any competition. So that's like, I think that's a big constituency. And then maybe there are investors and their friends. And, and that might be even like a form of regulatory capture, right? I mean, that's totally, totally. It's a hundred percent. what That's totally regulatory capture. Um, and then there's a, a second group, which I'd say maybe is a, a, a segment of the political base that wants control and they want total control. And I would say historically that has worked out very poorly for Americans. Um, we saw what happened in social networking where they tried to exert all kinds of control and limits. And obviously it did not only did it not work, but while that was happening and hamstringing American companies, China was taking over the lives and the attention of our kids. And so like that, that didn't work. And, you know, so I think that's the second group that sort of basically po politicians want total control of anything new and foreign and sort of looks like a, a Luddite kind of view. And then the third group is like the people that think that AI is going to just destroy the world. And I think those people have always existed with every technological innovation. They've always been wrong. The future of humanity has always been a, a, an advancing humanity. We've never been a retreating humanity. Um, and so the, those people don't, I think, don't need to be taken seriously, but they certainly, they certainly exist. But those first two constituents are very concerning. And it is a major, uh, I think we are just a major sea change in terms of step function of, of technological advancement. And, it, and the ripple effects will be, I think, potentially much more far reaching than, than mobile even, um, certainly on the level of the internet where, you know, the internet provided information uh, to people and the mobile component put it in people's fingertips and gave them a remote control for their life. And they gave them unlimited information on any topic anywhere. And AI is, is on that level. And the idea that we would a priori hamstring this in a way that limits it to just the incumbents or creates such a burdensome set of regulations and compliance to basically prevent any startup from innovating would be one of the greatest uh, miscalculations, I think, that the U.S. would, would face in the last you know, certainly century, if not more. I, I don't mean to sound too pessimistic, but I think it's almost an inevitability, and there's a few reasons for that. One is I mean, it's a step function change in technology and an acceleration that I think will be matched by an uh, equally accelerated regulatory regime. Um, and part of the reason for that, and actually uh, our partner Martin Casado uh, is the one that sort of opened my eyes to this, where you know for a very, very long time, 
people thought AI was going to replace all of blue collar jobs that, you know, you would automate warehouses, that you would be automating, you know, manufacturing, that that it would really, you know, AI would, would affect driver driverless cars, for example, that like there, there would be uh, that the jobs we needed to be most worried about would affect the vast majority of Americans. And it turns out that AI is actually far superior when it comes to white collar jobs, like uh, designing something beautiful on mid journey or making a beautiful picture or doing art, writing poetry. There's a whole class of jobs that that could potentially be replaced with chat GPT. And so when you think about how that affects the very people who are making laws, the very people who are sitting in Washington thinking about their jobs, they're far more motivated to, to act quickly, given that it affects them personally, um, than it affecting even their constituents. We should expect that there's going to be, I, I would say, a heavy push for regulation of AI. Uh, again, going back to the original conversation about, like, I'd rather invest in things where we know the regulatory regime than sort of invest in things and hope and pray that regulation doesn't come. Um, we should be expecting that, that there will be a set of regulations, but the kind of if we can get out from the other side and see what those regulations are, and hopefully, you know, tech, the best technologists will have a hand in building them, uh, then we can work within a framework in, in which, you know, the AI is being used for good in a variety of different verticals. Um, but, I, but I think it's going to be a, a tough few years um, in terms of kind of figuring out how it's regulated. Maybe I can even ask you, VJ. Yeah. If I am a patient and I get an x-ray, I would much rather an AI look at my x-ray um, with a, a really advanced computer vision and a huge ability to evaluate an x-ray more than a radiologist who maybe hasn't had enough coffee that day or maybe is tired or maybe his his or her eyesight is failing. Like, yeah, or at the very least, the radiologist with the AI like spell checker or like saying, is that is that a tumor? Or like, oh, yeah, that is a tumor. You know, something like that at the very least. Some of that, though, is that's not a regulatory problem. That's a workflow problem. That's a, a different type of human problem. And who's going to pay for it? Problem. Those types of things, like I think in healthcare, um, we're familiar with. Uh, what we're talking about here is going to be something where the spigot gets cut off one way or the other. Whether it's like you can't train new models, or you can't even crazy things like trying to gather large GPU clusters or something like that. That would really be uh, very different. And I'm curious though, like, well, like how could that even work? I don't even think what I can't even think what the precedent for that is uh, how they intend to define AI will be very, very complicated. Yeah, because like you think about powerful technologies that are not in everyone's hands. The only thing I could think of is maybe something like nuclear energy, uh, nuclear weapons, but that's not something where you can build that in your backyard somewhat intentionally. That's sort of so much more technical and and less approachable than AI in the sense that I, you know, like I have a, Mac laptop here with an M2 chip and like that alone could do like pretty amazing thing. AI is truly decentralized in that if you have a computer with a decent GPU or even a few computers with a few decent GPUs, it's amazing now with the, even with the existing open source uh, models of what you can do. And there's going to be more, right? There's going to be more open source models. Um, there's going to be more compute power. People are going to be able to put their compute power together. And so it, it will be very difficult. And so the, to, to me, providing frameworks and creating pathways for innovation is much more interesting than the roadblocks. And obviously other countries are, are some countries will take a much more extreme view, but many countries are not going to. And, and I think we have an opportunity to be one of the countries that leads the way in how we facilitate AI innovation, research, new technologies, and, and make sure it touches everybody. Uh, Catherine Diu, thank you so much for being on Bio2World. Well. Thanks so much. Thank you.
Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please note that the content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures.